Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And uh, today we have a very special guest to speak to. James, who have we we got on the line? Well, today we've got comedian, novelist, children's novelist, um, stand-up, David Baddiel. Hello, you ran out of things, Um, didn't you? David has got... You were wondering what else I've done and you'd forgotten. I've made documentaries, you know, and done a football song. I'm a bit starstruck. (laughs) Well, I I was about to say songwriter. I'm a bit starstruck, you see, David. That's all right, James. um, (laughs) So I'm... um, So, yeah, so anyway, we're very happy to have David here um, because he is obviously a Jew and uh, he's got a lot to say about these things and particularly relating to Second World War. So, David, welcome. Uh, Yes, lovely to, to be here. It feels like reinforcements another comedian on here because normally it's me versus two historians, David, and I get I get sort of ganged up on intellectually. Yeah. So this feels don't like worry about it. We'll help. Yeah, again. I mean, to start, James, who is the historian, was a bit sketchy about my history just then, wasn't he? So you know, I think we're, we're already ahead on that. <laughs> now, um, David, you've just had a, I suppose, a surprise hit would be the way of putting it, wouldn't it? With with your polemic, because that's what it is, uh, Jews Don't Count, your recent book about anti-Semitism um, and, mo- and, and modern contemporary anti-Semitism in particular, because this isn't a, a history in particular, is it? This is a this is a where we are right now book, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a sort of, it is a polemic. It's not, not a straightforward polemic, I think, because it's sort of got quite a lot of stories in it it's got some jokes in it uh it takes in history you know there is stuff about my family history in it and there are there is some data in it but it's mixed in with just a lot of thoughts and uh, argument really about how uh the present thinking around identity politics which includes a lot of as we know kind of very intense concern and uh sort of representation of minorities has in my opinion, left out or certainly misunderstood or finding it difficult to fit um, how anti-Semitism and, you know, the same kind of concern that those people who are in the anti-racist conversation would, don't, seem, don't seem to have that level of concern for Jews. Um, and so that's what the book's about. Um, but, yeah, it sort of is a surprise hit, although not for Jews, I would say. I, I mean, I'm quite surprised by how well it's done and how many non-Jews, including the target I guess who are the progressives who I'm critiquing have read it and you know apart from obviously the completely crank left who all completely hate it but who are prepared to say oh, this has made me think again but what I'm not surprised by to be honest is how many Jews have said at last someone has said this because I kind of knew when the Times of Jew Supplement who published it asked me to write a book and I decided to write about this that I was summarising to some extent a sort of tangible feeling that hangs in the intellectual air around Jews uh, and around how they feel to be left out you know of of that conversation for about 20 years I would say yeah yeah I mean one of the things that strikes that that strikes me about it is uh, and historically about anti-semitism is 
anti-Semitism has sort of adapted and, uh, you know, if, if it's a Richard Dawkins meme idea of an idea that adapts and survives and evolves, anti-Semitism has, has weathered all sorts of things that you'd think would put it out of business. So, um, the, you know, the growth of secularism in the 19th century, in theory, should have put the lid on Christian anti-Semitism, where it, where, it, where it came from in that respect, its antecedents there. But it didn't. And, and in fact, led it somewhere else altogether, coupled with Darwinism and those sort of ideas or, or a corruption of it, and then gets grabbed on by the Nazis. And you'd think the Holocaust might well have, you know, finished that off too, the realisation that this is where this kind of thinking gets you. So it's striking that it's, um, you know, mutated and evolved and, and resurfaced where you maybe least expect it in this um, part of uh, progressive discourse, isn't it? Yeah, it's surprising to an extent, although, you know, I think we're sure who called anti-Semitism the socialism of fools. Uh, and there's yep. always been a, a strain, I think, going back well before Jeremy Corbyn uh, and, you know, into, in, into the 19th century of left-wing thinking that blurs, and the book talks about this a lot, uh, blurs a kind of anti-capitalist mentality, anti-rich people mentality, with a notion that those are bait, that Jews essentially overlap with that and certainly in the imagery I mean one thing I talk about uh, is that mural uh, that Jeremy Corbyn got to yeah. trouble for supporting or rather for you know uh, speaking up against it being taken down and that mural is a very good example of that because the mural is uh, you know in mere one the artist's mind just a statement against capitalism and yeah. against oppression and against injustice there look it's the rich playing monopoly on the backs of the world's poor unfortunately it looks also like the cover of Der Sturmer. Uh, and it yeah. shows very clearly how that imagery of the evil rich just is Jewish, just the aesthetic is Jewish. In this particular case, yeah. he's quite blatant about it, Mir one, because he says, you know, yes, it depicted, I think he describes, he talks about white Jewish folk. It's so incredibly incredible, this sentence. He says, the white Jewish folk who were upset by me taking down their beloved Warburg and their beloved Rothschild, which is, I think, kind of an unbelievably Nazi way of talking. But he's coming from a perspective of I'm a fighter for the oppressed. Yeah, I mean, that piece of artwork, very, you know, because after one of the things that Nazis were capable of doing was saying that Jews were behind capitalism and communism. Um, and and it looks like it look that looks like example A from Nazi um, iconography rather than example B, which is which is Jews and hammer and sickle. It's half their story. He's sort of riffing on, if you want. There, the thing I was really struck by with the book, though, um, and we talked about this privately when I'd read it, was that you say towards I think it's towards the end of the book. You say, look, the thing is, I was born only nineteen years after the Second World War ended. My mother escaped the Holocaust. This is really 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 recent and your mother only died a few years ago so it's essentially within living memory that's the thing that i think is why there's such urgency around this topic this this question isn't there well i think it's certainly important because i think in, in the larger argument of the book I, I don't actually with most people who i would consider to be progressives think that they themselves in their neglect of anti-semitism constitute an existential threat to jews the existential threat yeah. to jews still comes essentially from the far right i mean actually also possibly from yeah. islamist circles in some cases but essentially from yeah. white supremacists and the far right the issue is one looks to progressives and certainly in the context of an intensification of concern about racism and anti-minorities to protect a threatened minority from that sort of yeah. thing. And that's what I feel is not happening as the beating drum 
of that noise of you know extreme anti-Semitism fueled by social media or whatever seems to me to start up again as you say in this incredible way of never quite going away and managing to mutate into different forms and whatever but yes in the back of one's mind uh, you know back of most Jews mind I think but I guess in my own personal thing because of my personal history there is yeah that much more recent experience and the recentness of it does to some extent come true and I think I talk about this in the book as you grow older it's kind of weird paradox as you grow older and I guess further away from it you realize how short a time it was more yeah two and a half years ago I, I got put in touch with a old friend of my uncle's who had come over on the kinder transport and she still lives in northwest London and um my cousin said, oh, you know, you should get in touch with her and talk to her and get her to come to the History Festival. You know, it should be fascinating to talk about her childhood and the rest of it. So I got in touch with her and spoke to her about it. And she was really nervous when I was talking to her about it. She said, well, I don't know that I want to go on, you know, I don't want to be in public talking about all this. I said, well, you know, it's entirely up to you, but, you know, it would be, re- you know, I know everyone would be absolutely fascinated to hear your story and it would be a really interesting talk and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, let me think about it. And she came back about a week later and she said, I thought about it. She said, I'm, I'm too frightened to do it. And I said, well, what, about, about sort of just stage fright and stuff? And she said, no. She said, I'm anonymous here in North London and I don't want anyone knowing about me. And I said, well, wh- wh- why? And she said, because of anti-Semitism. I was absolutely astounded. Uh, and, you know, and, and this was, I think, if I remember rightly, this was, this was before the kind of sort of worst of the, of the kind of sort of furore around the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn kind of sort of emerged. But I, I just remember being just so unbelievably shocked. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the response I've had to the book, as I say, is quite a lot of from Jews. It's quite a lot of them saying, you know, you've put into words and articulated something we've thought for a long time. But then I have also had one other thing, which is quite a lot of Jews, you know, not so much sort of famous people or whatever, saying actually, I don't normally tell people I'm Jewish and I don't normally talk about it, but I've read your book and I sort of feel maybe I should come out a bit more. And I talk in the book about Jewish shame, but shame and fear are very closely connected. Um, I personally, as anyone who's seen me do stand-up may know, don't really have the gene for shame. Um, So I've never (laughs) sort of understood the idea of being sort of under in the closet about Jewishness, but I do understand fearfulness about it completely, both because of my family but also because you know to be honest with you and I'm not sure you know I talk, I was talking the other day to a Jewish person a Jewish book week and I said you should perhaps if you're going to follow this model that I show in the book of like Jews should not be reticent about applying the ideas of identity politics to themselves so for example it is okay to think about non-Jewish privilege right and one thing is that non-Jews don't have to suffer is you know you grow up as a Jew uh, with a sense that there will be anti I mean, I was told by my, I went to a Jewish primary school. So I'm going to, okay, so I'm going to tell, this is a funny story, but let me just tell it. So when I went to my uh, kids uh, leaving primary school thing, right? Uh, you may have had this experience. It was a beautiful thing, uh, my kids. So like, this is about eight years ago. Uh, it was like songs and awards and poetry and it went on for like four hours it was like the oscars there was crying and hugging whatever when i left my jewish primary school in 1975 on the day that we left mr cohen came into our classroom and said that wherever we went in the world there would be someone who didn't like jews that was it right that was it no crying (laughs) no hugging no poems that was our news as we went out in the world and the tragic thing is he was right he was right when i went to my secondary school which wasn't jewish within two or three months of being there 
uh, a friend of mine who was Jewish overheard a teacher say to another teacher of me, Jew, and the other one say, of course. You know, that was devastating for me as a 11 year old to hear that about my uh, teachers. But I, you know, that low level anti-Semitism goes hand in hand with some more violent stuff that, you know, is talked about in the book and obviously a greater sense of the history or whatever. And I think that therefore it doesn't surprise me what your friend said about coming there. And I sort of hope that one of the things the book might do is at least mediate the fear that some of those people feel that gives them a way to talk about it. I'd be very interested to talk, talk to you a bit about your your own family's experience because obviously you you sort of should I go through the yeah, history, absolutely. Joe? Should I just go through the personal history? Because as far as I understand it, because uh, that that might help as a start. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, yeah, because they came because I know your you know your grandfather came over you know really late. I mean, nineteen thirty nine is kind of that's so, cutting it fine. Yeah, so this is as far as I understand it, and I'm actually writing a family memoir now as well. This is actually the basic facts. So they owned, they were rich, which I talk about in the book, about the sort of myth of Jewish richness. And then I talk about how some Jews are rich and it doesn't help because, you know, they lost everything and most of their family was murdered despite their riches. But they came from Königsberg um, and Königsberg is in East, was in East Prussia before the war. It's where Immanuel Kant uh, lived and, and wrote. It's a very beautiful uh, town, uh, the setting of the opening chapter of The Secret Purposes. And they owned this brick factory and then after 1935 and the Nuremberg Laws and everything else, they couldn't trade anymore. They had to sell the factory for a pittance to Nazis. Then after Kristallnacht, my grandfather was arrested. Uh, I believe he was also made to clear up the rubble of his synagogue. He was arrested along with, I think, 60,000 Jewish males were arrested after Kristallnacht and sent to concentration camps, which at that point were not extermination camps. Uh, they were, you know, sort of more like political prisoner camps, but they were certainly no picnic, and many people still died there. Uh, and he was in Dachau. Uh, for six months, uh, during which time my grandmother, who was pregnant, uh, basically bribed with whatever they had left, bribed Nazi officials and blah, 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 in order to get him out. And then they had four weeks, this is what I've always been told, to um, get out, because this was still at the time when Jews were allowed to emigrate, which I think was there was a window where the Nazi policy was get them out rather than kill them. Um, and they had to get to Britain. Now, in Britain, as also you may know, I mean, you may know about the Evian Conference. I, know, I don't know if you ever talked about the Evian Conference. But the Evian Conference, which I think, you know, involved countries meeting and saying, you know, yeah, we can't really take any Jews, maybe two dentists. Uh, it was like incredibly, it, it's reproduced actually, I think, in the secret purposes. It's really incredibly uh, shit, the way that most countries wouldn't take Jews. Anyway, so my grandfather... But but David, who was, who was which was the worst, you know, which were the kind of, you know, bottom of the pile countries and which were the better ones? Was Denmark good? <laughs> uh, you know what, I'd have to get a copy of the Secret Purposes where there's actually a table reproduced that says what uh, each country asked for. That's the thing, it's a weird thing. They ask for like, oh yeah, maybe we can have like 400... Jews under whatever or maybe as I say I think it was an African country something like Namibia or that probably didn't exist then but asked for two Jewish dentists um, and I'd have to I mean I, I feel yeah I feel I've let you down as a history program that I just don't know the answer to that that's alright that's alright okay so this is something that they, they told me that I didn't know about and I'm not sure I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it in a history book but they weren't allowed in unless he could show a thousand pounds in a British bank account um, and he didn't have that money because he didn't have any money so he had to get 
people he knew who had already left, already left Germany, uh, to transfer money to a British bank account for as long as it took to get a visa, essentially. Uh, and all this happened in the sort of four weeks that he came out of Dachau and before, you know, the window closed again, that would mean essentially that he'd be sent back to a concentration camp and die. Uh, and they managed it. I, I don't really know the details of how they managed it because there's all sorts of slightly silent histories that emerge now. My mother had two birth certificates. I'm not too sure why that is. I've done Who Do You Think You Are? It's still not very clear. Um, are you all right again for noise? This we're He's fine, now cutting we're his fine. grass incredibly him. loudly. <laughs> Can you hear that? <laughs> okay, you're fine, right? It's really annoying me. Right, I'm about to lose it completely with him. So I'm trying to talk about the Nazis here and my family's persecution. Um, anyway, uh, so anyway, they managed to get here, uh, you know, literally by the skin of their teeth. I mean, they arrived, I think, in August 1939 um, and were in a hostel. And then they were in one room, they lived in one room in Cambridge. And then my grandfather was, yeah, arrested in 1940 and interned on the Isle of Man uh, with most other refugee German Jews. Do you, David, do, I mean, do you know how that, that process happened? Do you know about these little kind of, you, you had to go before a magistrate and you had to kind of, you know, and you were classified A, B and C and all this kind of stuff. And, and um, it, it's just astonishing, isn't it, really? how someone who's Jewish and who's come from a concentration camp can get get put on the Isle of Man. But I think, to start off, if I remember rightly, you know, all males between the age of 20 and 45 or something, or 50, automatically went in, didn't they? And I think not all Yes, women that's right. Did. Well, my grandmother was now. There was a um, women's camp uh, in a place called Port St Mary on the Isle of Man. Uh, some women did, but I guess my grandma got out of it because she had a young baby. I don't really know why. But the the historically, the thing to know, I think, is that A the British government were not telling the public about the Holocaust. They were very worried, sort of loads of reasons for that. Some of them straightforwardly anti-Semitic, i.e. we don't really believe it, is it just Jews lying? And others were sort of strategic, a notion that the British public might think they were fighting the war on behalf of the Jews and they didn't want people to think that. So they were suppressing information about the atrocities on the Eastern Front, which actually is what my novel is partly about. Um, and that meant that there were all these Jews, I mean, not that many, but about 10,000, 20,000 Jews, German Jews in Britain, who, as far as the ordinary British person were concerned, were just enemies, just because they didn't really know why they were there. Uh, and they were German. And a hysteria built up, mainly in the popular press, in the Mail and the Express, about, yeah. you know, France and Germany. So France and Holland have fallen very quickly. That must be fifth columnists. They must be similar abroad in Britain oh yes, there they are, look, all these Germans are here. And that led to huge pressure on Churchill, who in July, I think, 1940, just said this phrase, collar the lot, uh, to sort of like accede to that tabloid pressure. And yeah, all Germans in Britain were arrested and interned, and that was 95% Jewish refugees, including my grandfather. Um, but the other thing to say about that is, so the British did a very British thing, which is they put them on the Isle of Man. And to be honest, those are not in any way concentration camps. They did a very lazy kind of British thing, which is just put them in B&Bs. We'll put some barbed wire around the street and we'll have one sentry, but basically just requisition the B&Bs. And the Jews do a very Jewish thing, which is in about three weeks, the Isle of Man, they turn it into Vienna. I mean, it's incredible. There's like a university there. There are recitals. There are cafes. There are six Nobel Prize winners on the Isle of Man in Douglas in 1940, uh, which is sort of unbelievable. And that's why I wanted to write that novel, 
My grandfather, to be honest, <laughs> once told me very secretly that he was very sad to leave the Isle of Man. He didn't say it secretly because he didn't want my grandma to know because he had been away from her. But he said it was actually a really interesting place to be. And then, and then once he was released from Douglas, what, what was the rest of their war like? Well, he was too old by then. A lot of Jews went and fought at that point for the Freedom Corps. Yeah. Is that what it was called? Uh, a yeah. section of the army where they could... Uh, you know, as complicated for them because they were still a lot of them sort of German and, uh, and that sounding obviously. And uh, but yeah, they could fight for that. But I think he was too old. Uh, he just went back to live in Cambridge with my mum and and with his wife. But I mean, this is comes back to your point, Al, about um, how you know history lives in the present. Is I when I was a bit older became aware that he was really really damaged um, uh, by the after the war. That essentially the depression of what had happened to him he'd lost everything he'd lost his family he'd lost the life that he was supposed to have he was an important industrialist and whatever you know and he had to work as a porter he worked in a hotel and he worked as a porter for a college he, he was in and out of mental hospital for the rest of his life um right. and uh you know a lot of the stuff that i talk about which is nothing to do directly with the nazis but with my mum in my show my family not the sitcom i think is all to do with that is all to do with the fact that she had this unbelievably weird damaged background and went on to you know have a very strange way of expressing herself uh, in her private life as a result of that so the trauma is my point lives on yeah. uh, you know it lives on in me i would say um and and in most jews who's I think I think my mother, even though she got out, I still think consider her a Holocaust survivor. Why should I not consider her a Holocaust survivor? Her life was ripped away from her. Yeah. Well, and she was in its sights. Yeah, certainly, exactly. Is the is, is the thing. Um, uh, uh, you've also made a um a a program about Holocaust denial yeah. and um, uh, which I which um funnily enough, uh, um I had to watch again recently oh because it was up for a it was up for a um. An award that I was on the panel. Oh yes. Um, at, yeah. No, I didn't. It didn't yeah. get nominated. No. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I did what I could. Shit. I've, I've just been <laughs> pissed off about that yesterday because wall to wall, the production company just contacted me to say it didn't get RTS. We're moving on from that, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, the thing I think that's um, uh, that was really interesting about that is again when we we, we talk about history living mm. is that 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 the denial lives. You can understand people at the time denying it mm. because after all it's the you know it's the crime of the century and the, the the Nazis the Nazis got in this tangle where they'd they'd say to themselves well we we're doing the right thing and in the end history will thank us and and it's a nasty job but someone's got to do it and they console themselves with all that sort of stuff but the idea that the idea that just as anti-semitism lives on or your family's history lives on the idea that that would live on where's the benefit in denying it now is I, I thought was that was a you know it's such a it's that documentary I thought was extraordinary because you were you were having to deal with people who on a blank sheet of paper struck me as one or, one or two of them is basically completely insane because they're denying such a concrete set of facts what was your experience of making that program and 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 why did you think you needed to do that well uh, actually the BBC came to me to do it and I felt that it was a really interesting subject in a way yeah. to talk about a larger thing which obviously affects 
you know history uh, which is about truth and the ability for the truth to you know still survive assaults on the truth which i see as happening more and more and more you know for yeah. obvious reasons to do with the way that technology allows assaults on the truth in a way that it's never has before and i would say that the holocaust for me is a kind of archetypal truth uh, you know, a bad truth about humanity, but a very archetypal one about this is what happens if, you know, kind of the psychosis that does dwell in humanity at some terrible level is allowed to operate on a national stage. And it's a very important truth that we are constantly aware of that. And lots of other examples of, you know, similar stuff goes on and still goes on. I would say China's the way that they're treating the Uyghurs now has an element of it and all the rest of it. I mean, things are badly compared to it, but there are things that need to be compared to it. So I yeah. thought, OK, the fact that people because it's much worse than you think, the level of denial There's uh, something like one in 10 people think that it was exaggerated and one in 25 think it didn't happen at all and whatever. Uh, and as I a, mean, those are those are astonishing numbers, aren't they? Well, I mean, in the in really, I mean, well, that, it depends where you are to some extent. As I, as a, a, of course, a, a bit in the program where I go and see someone who's a professor, a Middle Eastern professor, it's something like eighty percent in the Middle East believe the Holocaust didn't happen, um, and there are obvious other reasons for that, and it's a more politicised thing there. But in the you know in the West, you know, it's really to do with the need that people feel to question truth and somehow gain an identity through questioning truth. And so that was why, to some extent, I felt I'm going to interview this bloke. I mean, you know, the programme's got lots of me worrying about that and being conflicted about it and not sure about it and all the stuff about should we give these people a platform and blah, blah, blah. But I was always convinced we probably do need to do that because we are talking about this kind of thing. But also, I knew we were going to interview a survivor and I knew the survivor's testimony would override for any thinking viewer anything that a denier might say and in a way what I like about that program most of all is it builds and builds and builds to this weird confrontation with the weirdo and then it resolves with all the dignity that I feel that Rachel the survivor shows in the final interview and that's there we are this is truth this is madness you know but it's still a warning because madness is despite everything doing well (laughs) online and elsewhere you know so that's I guess why I felt the need to make it We've got to take a break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to David Badil. It always strikes me as uh, um, how, how anyone sets out to deny it as an event given the, the sheer amount of evidence about it. You know, the, 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 and the things you hear, oh, nothing was written down. Well, it's just not true. You can't pit, you can't, you can't, lo, you know, you can't find the location of of, of Hitler uh, giving consent to it. Or, well, you, yes, you can. Um, you know, you only have to, I mean, we, James and I talk about this a lot on the podcast, this idea that Germany in 1943 has effectively lost the war in the in the traditional sense you know it's run out of money it's run out of people it's lost what what are sort of napoleonic decisive battles on all of the fronts it's fighting on you know battles well, that done that by november 1941 well yeah yeah i mean yeah you you uh, jim argues 41 i go 43 and that you know that keeps us going when we've got nothing to talk about on this podcast <laughs> but, um, but, but, the, but the but the but the point is a big part of the reason they're still going that they're hanging on is is because they have they 
the, the Holocaust is a front that they're trying to win on. And, you know, the, 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 what happens in 1944 with Germany prolonging the war quite deliberately to extend the Holocaust, you know, completely suggests... Yeah, yeah. But that Hitler knows exactly what's going on and that he's I mean, that, driving But that's it. the whole point of putting the railway in yeah. up, up through the gate out at, um, at Birkenau because yeah. that's to speed up the death of the Hungarian Jews. So yeah. they'd have to, you know, because you can save time by making them not walk a mile and a half from, from the normal yeah. railway stop. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a book that I read very early on when I was reading about the Holocaust uh, by Joachim Fest. Do you know that book? Yeah. It's not a very um, sort of, you know, Marxist or you know social history version of that it, it is very much here is a psychosis kind of an individual psychosis hitler's projected onto a nation and i have to say i sort of buy that at the end of the day even though obviously there's all sorts of other reasons or whatever that that what you've just said shows that that's what's going on that you know that you can be in a situation whereby every military decision every strategic decision is not as important as how can we kill more Jews, right? I mean, even within the context of someone who's waging a war, which is a, going to lose, which is already, that's a bad idea, is there's something beyond that, which is, you know, my project is really not even to, ha- you know, it's probably less important than the Thousand Year Reich and the Lebensraum, where it's killing the Jews. And I think this is because... I- it's, it's also... Uh- David, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's not just killing the Jews. It's, it's eradicating everything of the Jews. So just for example, in Paris alone, there are 45,000 properties in Paris owned by Jews. And every single one is stripped clean. So, you know, right down to the pelmets around the windows, to toys, to crockery, to light bulbs, everything is completely stripped out. Yeah, that's because... Uh, every single one. Because that's, that's comes down to this psychosis thing, because that's when you have totally absorbed the idea that you're dealing with vermin. You're dealing with, essentially, COVID-19, yep. you know, as a people. Yeah. Um, and uh, the fact that you can, you know, harness actual countries... I mean, this is why I think the Holocaust remains kind of unique, and there's a separate discussion perhaps we can have about, you know, one of the things that um, I talk about in that documentary is what Deborah Lipschak calls softcore denial. And part of softcore yeah. denial is a tendency <laughs> to compare everything to the Holocaust and whatever. But I do think that there is a kind of unique quality to the Holocaust because there's been many, many other terrible things. But it's I can't think of anything, and you might be able to correct me, where a nation state has decided that its project is to wipe out a non-military people who aren't threatening them in any way you yeah. know well what well, well it's the conundrum of uh, uh okay so germany's got problems x y and z and they're the fault of the german jews which is you know hitler's stall what's that got to do with polish peasants po- polish peasant jews nothing what's that got to do with the ones in russia but that's not how he sees it, it it's not as it's you know because it is political it's the judeo-bolshevik question that he talks about all the time and you know communism is invented by a jew um, as is Christianity, of course, which is the other, which is the other, you know, because because basically absolutely everything, if you're thinking like that, everything's been touched by Jews or Judaism and to some extent, you know. So Paul, you know, it's it's Himmler, is it Himmler or Goebbels? I can't remember, gets quite tangled up about about Christianity being a Jewish creation. And that's and that's that's why that's got to go as well. 
Um, yeah, and that's in, why Christ the, has to become Christ run. with a K and, and yeah, some worldwide yeah. theory and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah, I suppose the only I mean the, the Yazidis, of course, um, you know, which I says to be yes, radical. that's true. Uh, and, to, and to a certain extent, the, the Uyghurs, because you know, if they're sterilising them, that's so they can't, yeah. can't be any more. No, no, I'm not right. saying. I mean, that's one of the complication things is that you know you you know talking about the Holocaust should not involve. Uh, you know, minimising <clears throat> other things, and some people within, no. you know, modern discussion get quite angry. I think about the notion of, you know, other atrocities not being given the same spotlight, or whatever. But then you get into a very complicated conversation that I sometimes have with people on the left who start saying, "Well, this is the one that's been spotlighted because it's a white-on-white white, uh, tragedy," which of course is not the way I see it, and certainly not the way that Hitler saw it, uh, no. which I think is a key issue but one thing um, that I also talk about in that documentary is I mention I think it's Himmler's speech to the SS in sort of late 1943 or something where things things are as you say going wrong but he does a speech to the SS essentially saying yeah what you're doing is the whole point you're killing Jews and whatever that's the whole point and that is a page of glory that will never be written it's a very weird bit of double think where mm. he's, he absolutely t says to the people doing this it is glorious. It's the most important thing you can do. And humanity will probably thank us at some stage, but we can't ever tell people about it. And it's such a strange combination of absolute conviction in what they're doing and shame somehow. And I've, yeah. you know, it's hard to sort of, yeah. sort of break it down. <clears throat> well, that is the kind of the weird paradox, isn't it? About all this. I mean, oh God, I mean, it's, 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 it's it's so unbelievable and it's so extraordinary how people can sort of rationalise things like that, and yet and I think that's what's been so alarming about recent years and and the, you know the kind of populist movement and far right sort of emerging again is 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 it, it just you know to you or I it just seems so insane it seems so mad so illogical how can anyone think like this and yet they clearly did to the extent of murdering six million people so you know it's it, I still find it very hard to get get my head around this. I also find it incredibly hard that you know I, I understand why someone would want to. We, we talked, Alan and I talked about this a bit on the on the podcast, but you know I can understand why someone might want to dress up as a Viking or a Roman or or a Napoleonic soldier or even a a World War Two Tommy because you know it's a it's a gang and it sort of takes you out of your your normal life and puts you into a kind of sort of slightly fantasy world and you know I I get all that, but why would you want to dress as the SS? I mean, it's just. So I think it's quite bizarre. stylish. I think that people, some people think it's really quite stylish, and you know Hugo Boss and all that. I don't, I, yeah. Can I just bring up something else, which is nothing to do with uh, our moral outrage at this point, but I think may interest you. Um, hmm. So I've done too many documentaries and stuff about this, but another one that I did because uh, I am basically the UK's Mr. Jew. Um, another one I did about sort of fifteen years ago was about Holocaust reparations. Which is a fascinating subject, actually a complicated, mm. a complicated subject, but a fascinating. Yeah, subject. I've done some work on that too. Oh, have you? Okay, great. Well, yeah. Um, so I, in that documentary, I sort of go over the main areas in which that happened, and and it's complicated because it included straightforward reparations, which essentially the Americans imposed on West Germany after the war. So if you had property or a business in West Germany before the war was taken away, then the Germans would give you reparations for that. And then there's the banks, because there were lots of people who lost their money that were in banks' account. And the Swiss banks eventually set up a fund, uh, nothing like the amount of money that was lost, but a fund which people could apply to. There's insurance companies have done the same, and looted art has done the same. But here's my point. Here's what I wanted to... And this is really a complaint, but I've started to uh, 
become sort of animated by it. Not that I can do anything about it, but here's the thing. So we didn't get much reparation. My grandparents, I think, in their 60s, got a pension from Germany. But that was really all they deserved because they'd worked half their lives in Germany, right? So, and that wasn't very much. And they just lived in a sort of two up, two down in Cambridge for the rest of their lives. The reason they didn't get any reparation is that their brick factory, or the rubble of it, was in Kaliningrad, in Russia, after the war. And Russia doesn't see any reason to pay back Germans. And fair enough, Germans raped their country. And that's actually basically what they said to me when in that documentary the BBC wrote on their behalf, they basically said, fuck off, you're, as far as we're concerned, your ancestors were German, right? And then someone said to me, sometime after that documentary, and it sort of hadn't occurred to me, yeah, you shouldn't be asking Russia for the money back, you should be asking Germany. It doesn't matter geographically where these places were after the war, the reason that your grandparents' brick factory was taken away was German. There was a German looting, and Germany should still be responsible, but they don't. Germany don't pay reparations for assets, property, monies, or whatever, to families who ended up after the war in places that obviously the map was redrawn were no longer Germany. And I want to, at some point, and you guys, welcome to help in any way you can, to start a class action about this, take on the German state, and force them to pay billions back to people like me. What do you think? Well, yeah, I'm I going. mean, uh, <laughs> what's, the per- what, what's the percentage? This has the makings of an insurance heist. I mean... Yeah, well, you know, if you, if you know the right people, you're in for 10%. <laughs> the odd thing, thing is, really, the odd thing, though, is really, really interesting because, you know, a lot of this stuff is just, just gone. And because... You know, and and um, you know, the German state has got huge numbers of 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 uh, works of art. You know, priceless works of art that they know were stolen. Yeah, and, they, and, and, and they're the absolutely and screwed, and, and they're completely screwed up about it because they don't know what to do with it because the people who who should have it back there are no relations left because they were all exterminated. So so what do you then do? So what they tend to do is kind of put it in a in a you know, warehouse somewhere museum. where no one can see it. Well, they don't even put it in a museum. I mean, that's what they should do, clearly. Um, well, no, but that's what happened with... with the Hil- in, There was the a Hildebrand film about it, the Klimt... The yes, Klimt the Klimt one, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, they, it was in the Vienna Museum and the woman who's, uh, you know, was part of the family, a daughter or whatever, the person who it was stolen from, sued the Austrian government and it became... You see, that's where you get... You ask, how does anti-Semitism carry on? Yeah. This is how it carries on. Because that belonged to that family. It ends up in an Austrian museum, and then when she says you should give that back to me, there's a sense in which, oh, this is Jews wanting our expensive painting for herself so she can sell it, and which in fact she did. Um, <laughs> but it is hers. Yeah, yeah. It's hers she to do, do what she likes. Yeah, she can do what she likes with it. But there is a sense from the Austrian government, uh, and I, I, I noticed this when I was doing this program in Poland, that as well, you know, some Jewish people have been trying to get you know, their descendants have been trying to get property back that was stolen from them. And there's an attempt for a restitution law in Poland. And it's being totally portrayed by the far right. In fact, I think by the centre right as an anti-Semitic, in anti-Semitic ways. This is Jews trying to grab our money. But you, it was taken away from them illegally. That's, that's what you're leaving out of this equation. But the myth of Jews somehow getting hold of money just completely starts again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Oh, God. One other thought about that, which you may be interested in, is a few people have said to me, you should get German citizenship because of Brexit. Yeah. Right? 
and wanting to travel in Europe and be European <laughs> and all that. And I, I, I've got friends, and quite a lot of Jews, who have that opportunity because they came, you know, their parents came from Europe or whatever. I'm finding that quite difficult emotionally. The idea of applying for German citizenship. I mean, your 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 um your parents. Quite tempting, though, isn't it? It is tempting. At the same time, I can feel somewhere very deep inside me a prickly not kind for, of a prickly feeling. Yeah, and not for me. But your and your your um uh, uh, mother's family always been German Jews. They've been there forever, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, they're totally German Jews. Well, actually, my grandma was in Gdansk. Yeah, Danzig, Danzig yeah. which I think was was a free city, but she was German. Yeah within the free city. My, my dad, uh, he, you know, they came at, Jews are always fleeing. So his lot came at the end of the 19th century fleeing Russian pogroms. Yeah. Uh, and they came from sort of Lithuania, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but they were, they've been here for a while and he's Welsh. He's still with us, very bad dementia, yeah. but he's still with us and he's Welsh. And I think of him primarily as Welsh, to be honest, my dad. Yeah. Uh, but my mum, definitely, she was born in Germany. And actually, the Germans have only changed the law recently. You can apply for German citizenship now if you have a German mother. But they had this weird sexist thing whereby it used to only be your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You only, you, you, but now you can. Now you can apply. So I could definitely get German citizenship. But I don't know if I want it exactly. I mean, I'd like to have a passport that would allow me to travel in Europe without having to get a fucking visa because of Nigel Farage. I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but I have a lot of demons to deal with to do that now. I blame Nigel. Basically. I mean, there's a there's a novel in that, surely, David. The, the, <laughs> yeah, possibly. The, the, yeah. the Jew who gets a German passport discovers yeah. he's well, in a German. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a great novel idea. <laughs> I, um, well, uh, well, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this, David. I mean, that... You know, I always think when when we have a guest on to talk about a, an aspect of the war that we've not talked about, um, we we end up we always end up saying we can talk about this forever, and um, it is a, the the can of worms that this is because it is as we as we said I think about halfway through it was the anti-Semitism is absolutely the the driving force of the Nazi state. It's why they want to get their hands on Poland. It's why they want to get into Eastern Europe, and and it and if you if you Leave that out of your picture of the Second World War. You'll never understand it as an event. And, you know, and even down to before the war, nations dragging their feet about what to do about, um, you know, Jews who are trying to escape and then what to do about Jews once the war's underway. It, you can't understand the event without knowing about anti-Semitism and having your head around the, how important and central it is to, to Nazi thinking, I think. That's fair to say, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's just one other thing, David, before you before you shoot off, I just wanted to um, talk to you about, and that's that extraordinary bit in your your book, Jews Don't Count, about the translation from the genuine Nazi that's in, that's in in the camp on the Isle of Man, and they're translating it and um, and saying, oh, yeah, you know, she's yeah. talking, you know, is it a Jewish is it Jewish women that she objects to sharing a room with, or is it a Jew woman, Jew women? Well, uh, and and you were right, say, James, you, James. yeah, go on. Sorry, I'm just going to, if I could just sort of make that slightly clearer for anyone who hasn't read it. It's uh, in The Secret Purposes, uh, which actually I, this, I've referred to this point before. Because the British government 
1939-1940 were suppressing information about the Holocaust. One of my characters, who is a translator, a woman, works at the yep. Ministry of Information, and is translating reports of atrocities. Uh, she goes to the Isle of Man because she wants to find out the truth, and she interviews refugees. And one of the one of them is not a ref, well, not a refugee. He's a German who was in Britain at the time, who is a Nazi, a woman. Yeah. And she at some point says, "I do not want to share my quarters with." you didn't she's talking in german and she tries to translate that and she writes jewesses and then she feels that is not contemptuous enough for her tone i'm not getting that right right and then she realizes the way to do it is to say jew women and then there's a whole bit about how is it that just by missing out the suffix ish on this word you transfer that word's power to something fairly neutral to something extremely uncomfortable and you can see it with jewish women jew women jew bankers jewish bankers jew jewish boy jew boy i can't think of another word i can't think of another word that transfers its moral compass in such an extreme way through grammar i can't think it, of another it absolutely word that does, does but it, but it is so powerful isn't it? it it's it's extraordinary and i just never thought about i mean I read your book whenever it came out, like 15 years ago. So, I'm, I'm, forgive me, but I can't remember much more no, no, than the course, kind of bare, bare, bare details. But, but to reread that se- section in in your recent book, I, you know, it is. I was really arrested by that. You know, I really was shocked by that, and and it is incredibly I think I was powerful. Trying, thank you, but I think I was trying a to make a point about. Uh, why I have Jew as my avatar on Twitter, which is a complicated thing that involves many things, but it, it involves comedy and it involves sort of a certain pride and a refusal, but also it's an attempt to reclaim that word. But then I say it's quite a difficult word to reclaim because unlike all the other words that you know minorities have imposed on them that are normally slang words and insulting slang words that they've sort of you know reclaimed or whatever that is the word yeah that is the oed word for what i am and it has this weird evil built into it because it's toxic within judeo-christian culture and in a way what i'm trying to show there is you know this structural racism that we talk about that definitely exists towards other minorities there's a very ancient form of it towards Jews that you're missing and you can see it in the fact that you're uncomfortable using the word Jew. Why is that? Because it's surrounded with this centuries-old toxicity. Well, yep, on that there note. We there we are. On that note, well, yeah, thanks for... <laughs> You always end on a you always end on a high laugh there, David. It's a character. It's one of your showbiz tells. Um, <laughs> I'll do a song, shall I? <laughs> Why not? Um, well, Lift thanks so much for talking to us, David. And um, uh, if people haven't read it, Jews don't count. Is is uh, well, it's certainly it. Uh, I, I, I it felt like it feels like a pamphlet from the from the sort of glory days of pamphleteering, and that you know that that every other noun isn't capitalised and all that sort of thing, because it's got that righteous fury in it. Uh, uh, makes it a, a, a terrific read. So any of our listeners, if you've not if you've not had a chance to read it, uh, Jews Don't Count by David Baddiel. Um David, thank you so much for well, joining And us. also, I should say, The Secret and, Purposes. And The Secret Purposes. Thank you very much. A, uh, thank you, Al. Reprint soon. Um, thanks, David. Yeah. We'll see you again soon. Thank thanks, you, everyone, James. for listening. Goodbye. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys. Great chat. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs>